course, uh, this past weekend, a uh, horrible situation in Vaughan, north of Toronto. A mass shooting at a condo tower left five people dead, six including the gunmen who died after a confrontation with police. And obviously a lot of questions now about you know what led to this. Could this have been prevented? Were there any red flags? This was clearly somebody who was very troubled. We understand he lived in the condo tower. There'd been ongoing issues with the condo board, some lawsuits. He was convinced or concerned anyway that uh, an electricity unit below him was was making him ill. And maybe this was some kind of a, a revenge attack. So uh, that investigation continues, obviously. But, you know, we, we've been talking a lot lately, it feels like, when it comes to mass shootings, in particular what's been happening on a, a tragically regular basis in the United States. To try to better understand the phenomenon, though, uh, I want to bring into the, the conversation here someone who researched this that also was connected to what happened on Sunday in Vaughn, lives in that very condo tower. Uh, Jack Rozdilski is uh, an associate professor at York University, as mentioned, uh, does research the phenomenon of mass shootings and joins us on the line here this morning. Professor Rozdilski, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Uh, yes, uh, uh, thank you, Rob. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, just a, a, a bizarre sort of second set of circumstances, you know, that this is your field of research, and here it is right in where you live, basically. What, what more can you tell us, first of all, about what happened on Sunday and, and what it was like for those living in the tower? Well, Bob, I, I first want to say I've been a guest on your um, uh, program before, <laughs> uh, speaking on various issues related to crisis and disaster, and I, I appreciate the thoughtful approach you take. Mm-hmm. Since so. this is a very so. difficult subject matter to speak about uh, from the first-person perspective, but uh, as you said, this mass shooting hits pretty close to home for me. In fact, in my home. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so pretty scary situation. It's, I mean, it sounds like everybody was evacuated for a while. Um, I, I don't know what you saw or heard. I mean, wh- what point were you aware of what was going on there? Yeah, the, um, about 7.30 in the evening on... Sunday. I, I, I was in my um, part, portion of the condominium, and a fire alarm goes off. So when a fire alarm goes off, what I do is I uh, pick up my stuff. I, in the, I get out of the building. I go down the stairs, go out through the lobby to the outside until the fire department comes. It may be a fire. It may be a false alarm. But you exit the building when a fire alarm takes place. In this case, I went out to run some errands. Uh, after the alarm went off, I left the complex. I come back, and I see a state of uh, controlled chaos on scene. I see tactical police office officers with long guns rushing in and out of the building. I see the fire fire department. I see paramedics. I see media converging on the site. I see confused residents waiting outside. And it wasn't until after midnight that... I was able to get back into where I live by police escort. And when I was able to get back in about six hours later, I'm basically being escorted through crime scenes. And I've, um, I saw some stuff I cannot unsee. But the point that I would like to make is I thought I was evacuating due to a fire alarm. I did not know at the time that I was going down the stairs in the midst of an active shooter situation right. happening very close to me. I only learned that was happening after I got away from the event. 
One of the areas of research when it pertains, as it pertains to mass shooting, right, are the, you know, the impacts on those who are, are witnesses or affected by it or, you know, even the survivor's guilt that can come into play in some circumstances. Uh, now, here you are kind of on, on that side of it. What, what mm-hmm. more? I don't know. Does it change your perspective at all or does it kind of confirm a lot of the things, you know, that the research has shown us about those impacts? Well, I, I, I have a lot of questions in my head about what happened to me and my, my neighbors in the building, but I also have, unfortunately, some familiarity with looking at these things in the past, such as the, the Porter Peak shooting in uh, Nova Scotia, which has killed 22 here in Toronto, the Danforth mass shooting in 2018. Uh, but what kind of we need uh, now is time and space to recover and uh, basically psychological first aid. And what that means, interventions that, um, mental health interventions by services that include providing physical and emotional support, as well as uh, uh, practical assistance to help us get by day to day now, uh, following what hundreds of people in this building have gone through by experiencing the traumatic events. What we know about the shooter in these circumstances, uh, you know, as, as I alluded to in the introduction, I mean, you know, we, we're getting a picture, a clear picture emerging of, you know, what what was going through this guy's mind, what he was so upset about, the people he blamed for his situation. When we think about mass shootings that have occurred elsewhere, how common is this kind of an element, this sort of, you know, revenge and uh, those those elements that go with it? Well, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this because when we look at mass shootings, we're unfortunately all familiar with school shootings. Right. We're familiar with shootings in public places like uh, the uh, 2017 Las Vegas Route 91 Harvest Festival. 81 people killed, over 600 wounded. A mass shooting taking place at a public place. Uh, mass shootings at workplaces. El Paso, Texas, 2019. 22 people killed in a Walmart, but that's like schools, that's workplaces, uh, places of uh, worship, um, Pittsburgh synagogue uh, shooting, etc. But now, when shootings happen at workplaces, at churches, at schools, at public events, you can go away from those places and go home if you were exposed to it. Mm-hmm. In this case, I can't go home to get away from it because the mass shooting did occur in the building in which I live, which is my home. So that's something that myself and my neighbors are grappling with. We actually live at the mass shooting site, and we cannot go home from that to get away from it. Yeah, which would be pretty traumatizing, I would imagine. Yeah, so um, and in terms of like models and how this uh, works, this is uh, not unheard of, but out of the ordinary that a residential condominium is exploited as a soft target type of site by a person with antisocial tendencies, which you suggested uh, was a resident of this building, which who apparently had long-standing disputes yeah. with the condominium governing board. But that being said, there's no excuse that exists to bring that type of violence to a building, period. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, clearly. I mean, I, I think, you know, part of it is try to understand as much as we can when something like this happens, like, why did it happen? What what gets somebody to that point? Uh, and, and maybe in some cases it's, it's you know, hatred or manifestation of a hateful ideology. 
you know, maybe there are mental health issues that come into play. I know that that can be something people are maybe too quick to go to, but maybe in this instance, it was a factor. So there was that why. And then the how. How were they able to do it? How was this individual able to get his hands on what we understand to be a semi-automatic handgun that was used? It doesn't appear as though he was a licensed or legal gun owner. So there's there's the why and the how, right, that are these two big questions. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I don't want to necessarily go on a soapbox here and get into gun control issues, but I could just say I'm both sad and I'm angry that my sense of safety in my home has been taken away by gun violence. And I would hope um, policymakers who are smarter than me on these issues can kind of grapple with the myriad portions of this issue just to do something to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone again in Canada. Because there's a lot of people right now in this building suffering for a lot of different reasons, and we don't want this to happen again. That's for sure. Well, you wrote about this. Sorry, it's about the, the yeah. It's up at theconversation.com. So, what, what, yeah. I guess what 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 do you want people to to take away from this, and and why you felt you know was something you wanted to address? Um, the, the the reason I, I wanted to, despite being difficult to address it, the, the reason I wanted it to be be addressed is because I, I think research shows that for people who have been exposed to mass shootings. There are a number of uh, negative mental health outcomes that can occur, and we need some help here. And we're starting to see good things happen. There's a small memorial outside the building. There was a moment of silence at the Maple Leafs Leafs game the other night. There was a candlelight vigil held by the city. But I think just to make the point, when these types of mass shooting, human-induced disasters happen, there's not only interest in needs and lists in the immediate 72 hours uh, after the event, which is where we're at right now, but these needs are going to go on for a long time. And I like to stress the importance of just support, backup, resources, and options made available for people who are indirect and direct victims of the smash shooting to be able to cope the best they can. Well said. Uh, as mentioned, theconversation.com. Jack, thanks again for joining us here today. Appreciate the perspective. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.